Sorry, 787, yes, okay. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is life, not more, is life more important than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or sto- store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon, in all his splendor, was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. This is the word of the Lord. Bible reading. Uh, good morning. Great to see you. Um, it's a delight to join you here at Sha Tin again. And I bring greetings as well from the staff and council of St Andrews and the members. Uh, we hear about you regularly and we pray for you often and we delight to hear how you're going. So it's, a, it's great to be invited here once again and to look at God's word with you. Um, let me pray for us as we come to look at this fascinating passage. Our loving God and Heavenly Father, thank you that you supply us with all our needs. You give us what we need for life and health and salvation in your Son, Jesus. And Lord, we thank you particularly for your word, that it shows us how we can live lives which are obedient to you, and it tells us about the great news of your Son, Jesus. As we look at this passage now, guide us by your Spirit, because our hearts are prone to wander. We're prone to forget your goodness to us. Help us to understand these truths and apply them to our lives so that we can be better disciples of your son. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. Well, in the Russian winter of 1910, uh, one of the world's most famous novelists wandered out into the cold Russian nights, contracted pneumonia, and died by himself at a railway station. It was Leo Tolstoy. 
and he was 82 years old. Uh, this happened only a few days after he decided to renounce his aristocratic lifestyle, including all of his vast estates, and live a life consistent with what he thought were the teachings of Jesus from the Sermon on the Mounts. Um, after writing his great works, Anna Karenina and War and Peace, uh, Tolstoy decided that he wanted to follow what he thought was the centre of Christianity. The Gospels were the centre of the Bible and the Sermon on the Mount was the centre of the Gospels. Um, later on, small communities were set up to try to follow Tolstoy's example and teachings. Uh, not one of them survived. Uh, one of his followers would later on say that, that Tolstoy, uh, his teachings alienated him from his friends, uh, caused trouble in his family, um, strained relationships with his wife and left him spiritually alone. In fact, that was why he died by himself at that railway station. He was, he was fleeing from his family and wife. Um, his ideals weren't very realistic. Um, even in his own life. He was a man who sincerely tried to follow Jesus' teachings from the Sermon on the Mount and it crushed him. It was a burden too heavy for him to bear. Now, a lot of people said that Tolstoy went a little bit crazy, that he wasn't being very realistic, but it leaves us with this lingering question. Are Jesus' standards realistic for us? Are they attainable? I mean, look at the issue of worry. Uh, there, there are all sorts of things for us to worry about in life. We will seemingly worry about things all the time. Um, is it possible to follow Jesus' commands about not worrying? Because we'll all worry about something. Life is full of worries. Um, from thinking about whether you locked the front door when you left home this morning, or um, whether you'll be able to get that project completed on time this week, to the big ticket items like, will you be able to get your child into that school, or will my father beat that cancer? We'll worry about all sorts of things. What about, what about money? Is it, is it possible to follow what Jesus says about, about not storing up treasures on earth? Um, if, if that's the case, how do I how do I properly care for my family? Or how do I wisely plan for the future? Is it possible to follow all of Jesus' commandments from the Sermon on the Mount, or am I just destined to be crushed under the weight of burden? Now, rather than seeing all these rules as a heavy burden that are too heavy for us to be able to carry, instead, we should see the Sermon on the Mount as a goad to the gospel. It reveals to us how we're not honouring God, those areas in our lives in which we're not honouring God, but also it shows us our complete need for grace. Jesus puts under the microscope all those areas of our lives where we're not honouring him. And so as we look at this passage this morning, we're, we're going to look at two problems and a solution. The problem of earthly treasures and the problem of worry, but then finding a solution to those things. Uh, from verse 19, Jesus talks to us about the comparative durability of two treasures. Treasures on earth, um, which have a limited lifespan, which are corruptible and insecure compared to treasures in heaven. 
Uh, Jesus tells us to invest wisely, to invest in the latter, not the former. Treasures in heaven which are eternal, uh, which are incorruptible and secure. Now, it's important for us to realise that what Jesus is not saying, what he's not saying, uh, he's not forbidding the possessions of, the, 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 the having possessions full stop. He's not forbidding possessions full stop. Nor is he prohibiting us to save money for a rainy day. Nor is he telling us to despise all those good things that God gives us. No, instead, he's speaking against the selfish accumulation of possessions about this hard-heartedness that makes us resilient to the needs of others. He's speaking against this fixation on comfort and security and the fantasy that life consists of the abundance of our possessions. But I suspect, I suspect most of us here don't need to be convinced about all these things, right? You know, we've done the maths, we've done the cost-benefit analysis, we believe in the blessed hope that is beyond this life that the gospel tells us about. We believe in all these things, so we don't need to be convinced, right? And yet, why is money often a problem for us? Why are earthly treasures, why do they have such a, a blinding power on us? Well... I think verse 22 helps us. Jesus says, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. Light helps you to see. If you have a light on in a room, it helps you not to run into the furniture. You can walk properly so you don't fall over and hurt yourself. Um, light is good because if you're in the dark, you stumble and fall. Likewise, the eye is the lamp of the body. That's not supposed to be taken literally, but with the eyes, you can make sure that the body is safe. The eyes illuminate what the body does. If your eyes are fine, you can stay out of trouble. And you, can, you say, okay, all right, what does this have to do with money? Well, this little section comes after what Jesus has said about earthly treasures, but it comes before what he says about money. Choosing between your masters, God and mammon, so to speak. The answer is, I think money has this ability to blind us. It has this blinding power over us. We don't, really, we don't see the real danger that money has over us. Look, I mean, here you said this before. Generally, we know when we're committing those other sins. Generally, we know when we're committing adultery. You don't fall over and commit adultery accidentally. You're, or, or when you're lying or stealing. You generally know those things. But such is the blinding power of money over us that we often don't see how much we love it and serve it. Now, hardly anyone says, I'm too materialistic, I'm too greedy, make me stop. Um, the Bible continually warns us against the dangers of materialism and yet very rarely do we think we're too materialistic. One of the great problems about money is that the more money you earn, the more you're likely to spend. Now, I've heard this called the tolerance effect. You, you know about the tolerance effect, right? Um, the tolerance effect is it, when you're addicted to a particular drug, you, you, you find that you need a certain amount of that drug every subsequent time to have that same effect. As time goes on, your body begins to tolerate it. It gets used to it, and you're going to need a bigger hit in order to have that same effect. That's the same thing with money. Here's how the 
how it works. Uh, when, when you begin working, we, we probably all remember back to that time, you make a certain amount of money and you can only afford a certain amount of things. Um, but then when you make more money, you can afford to buy those things that you couldn't buy before. You can call these things luxuries. Why are they luxuries? Well, you lived perfectly fine without them before. You didn't need them before, but now you've bought them. Now that you have these luxuries, the, the tolerance effect takes hold on you. These things that are delightful for you, you, you quickly find that you cannot live without them. Uh, these luxuries become necessities. Uh, you get conditioned into thinking you need to live according to a particular standard. Those things that beforehand you could live without, now you find you cannot live without them. You feel as though you never have enough money to meet your needs, to, to, to meet all the costs that are coming in. And so you aren't inclined anymore to give what God has given you to God's causes. You keep it to maintain a particular certain standard of living that you think you need to have. You, don't, you think you don't have enough money, but really you do. That, that's the tolerance effects. That's part of the blinding power that money has over us. But I actually think it goes a little bit deeper. How we spend our money tells us about what we love the most. Jesus says in verse 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And then in verse 24, no one can serve two masters, either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Those two verses are, are, are related. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You want to know what it is you love the most or that you serve the most? You, do you want to know where, where you get your sense of um, self-worth from, then look to where you spend your money most easily. An example, what if you really don't like classical music, but your daughter does, and she asks you one day if she can take cello lessons, and cello lessons aren't cheap, and then after cello lessons she says, Daddy, could you buy me a cello? And that's not cheap, and a little bit of you dies within once you see the price of the cello. And then, then she wants you to go to all the school concerts, and you know that's going to be painful to you, because going to those school concerts sounds like, well, a whole group of cats in a bag fighting one another. You know it's going to be painful to you, but you do it. Why? Because you want to be a good parent. But what happens if, on the other hand, you happen to love classical music? then you'll happily buy her a cello. In fact, you'll, you'll pay for an upgrade each year, even when she doesn't need it. And, and you'll happily pay for all the lessons, not just the standard lessons, but the ones with the really expensive teacher because you want her to go really well. And you'll not just go to her school concerts, you'll buy tickets, season tickets for you and her to the Hong Kong Phil, so you can go all the time. You'll happily spend money. In fact, it feels like you're not spending money at all because this is, where, this is what you love. This is what your heart loves. You can easily spend money on those things that your heart loves. Thomas Cramner, Archbishop Thomas Cramner once said, what the heart loves, the will chooses and the mind justifies. What the heart loves, the will chooses and the mind justifies. Do you want to know where your real masters are? Look at where it's easy for you to spend your money. It could be on really good things. Your kids, education, family, holidays, the mortgage, all those things that are easy. 
but what your will, what your heart loves, your will chooses, your mind justifies. Does your money just fly out of its pocket for God's causes? The works of the gospel, the work of poor and all that type of stuff. Or does your money fly into your savings account, your managed funds, your investments, your mortgage? All those things are a necessity, but they're the things that are occupying more of your time. Or does it fly into all sorts of other places? So Jesus talks to us first about the problem of, of money, of, of earthly treasures. But secondly, he also talks to us about the problem of worry. Those two things are related. He says in verse 25, Therefore, therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body or what you will wear. Is, life, is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Uh, Jesus tells us not to worry. Now, worry is not concern. It's right for us to be concerned about things. It's right for us to care about those things that we've been given responsibility for, to care for the people around us. Appropriate concern should lead to appropriate action. However, worry is more than concern. Worry is over-concern. Worry is this uneasiness, this anxiety about the potential, not the actual. Now, we get a better idea of what worry is when we see what Jesus says in verse 27. Can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? Do you see that? We want the power to add to the span of our life, even an hour. We want that power, that power that God has, but we don't have it. It's like Jesus is saying to you, listen, when the doctor gives you bad news, or your boss gives you bad news, and you suddenly feel anxious because you feel like things aren't in your control. That's always been the case. Your doctor or your boss is just revealing to you what has always been your situation anyway. The threat has removed the illusion that you're in control. The essence of worry is to, control, is to worry about those things that we can't have control over. Jesus said earlier, we worry about what we eat and drink, uh, what we wear. Um, in other words, we, we, we worry about our earthly treasures. We want to be in charge of our physical circumstances, what we look like, our health, um, our homes, to have clarity when the future is unknown to us, security in an otherwise insecure world. Remember, Jesus is not speaking to pagan unbelievers here. The Sermon on the Mount was given to God's people, the Jewish people, not pagan unbelievers, people like us. And even though we might cognitively believe that God is in control, our worry is the continual message to God saying, God, I know you're the sovereign creator. You put this universe together and you have provided the way of salvation through your son, Jesus Christ, but I just really, I'm, I'm not sure that you know how to arrange my week. I'm, I'm really, you don't know that the expenses, the pressure I'm under God. Our worry is that continual message to God about these things. We find it difficult to give control over to him. This uncertainty is unsettling for us. You see, it's, it's one thing to believe in God on the one hand and another thing to believe God, to believe that God knows all our circumstances and our ways and will provide it for us according to our needs. So if earthly treasures and worry are the problem, where do we get the solution? 
Well, Jesus tells his disciples to look at the world around them. Look. He says, verse 26, look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? And then verse 28, and why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. Look at the birds of the air. See the flowers of the fields. That's Jesus' method. We're supposed to pause, observe, think, evaluate. You know, left on our own, we will worry. We'll worry because there's all sorts of things in life that are waving their hands and demanding our attention and affections. So faith is not the absence of thinking. Jesus is telling his disciples to look at the world around them and think about how God operates. Faith does not operate for us automatically. You must think about how God works. You must apply these truths down into your own lives and hearts. You've got to be intentional. It's like having a conversation with yourself. You might, you might remember Psalm 42. Um, the psalmist says to himself, Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I'll yet praise him, my Saviour and my God. We've, we've got to do the same thing. It's a spiritual discipline to look how the world works, look at how God operates, remind yourself of your, his constant provisions upon you, preach to yourself. That's how faith goes, that's how it operates. I mean, look what Jesus does. He, he mounts two arguments for us. First of all, he says, think about the birds of the air. God knows their need, God takes care of them. Don't you think God will take care of you? He's arguing for the sovereignty of God. He's getting us to remember that in the grand scheme of things, God is in control. We aren't. He controls everything. We don't. He controls everything for our good even when we don't see it. I was thinking about this a little while ago. I have three sons at home and they love Nintendo, Nintendo Wii. And because their father is a little bit tight, their Nintendo is an old machine with old games. But they still love it anyway. And one day we were going out, we are going to go to a concert. And my boys were playing Nintendo. And one of them, let's call him X, uh, didn't want to stop. For him, the world was a Nintendo-shaped world at that moment. And even though we were being very persuasive to him, um, he didn't believe that the concert was going to be great, it was going to be rubbish. All he wanted to do was just play Nintendo. And regardless of my methods of persuasion, at the time, um, he just wouldn't be convinced. He simply wouldn't believe me that where we were going was much better than what he was doing right now. But eventually, he came. You know, reluctantly, slowly, rather surly and bitterly. He came, and what happened? You know, we, we had a great time. He had a great time. He forgot all about what he was besotted by beforehand. And that's what the human heart is like. We think we have a particular idea of how things should go. That's our agenda. And we think life should conform to our agenda and God should help us to get there. And when we don't know how our agenda will be secured, we, we get worried. And when our things don't work out the way our agenda is planned, then we get bitter, surly, maybe even angry at God. We forget to remind ourselves that God is in control and nothing happens 
without his sovereign hand upon it. And all things happen, even the difficult things happen for our good. So that's the first argument. Jesus talks about God's sovereignty, but secondly, he he talks about God's love. He says, look at the birds, God feeds them, but they're just birds. Don't you think God cares more about you? Or look at the flowers of the fields. You know, not even Solomon was dressed more beautifully, but they're here one moment and gone the next. Don't, don't you think you're more important than that? How much more? That's the line of argument. How much more does God love you? Jesus is reminding us of our great worth before God, that we are the pinnacles of his creation. We're made in God's image. More than that, it's because of you that God sent his son into the world. God has dealt with our most pressing and urgent need through his son Jesus Christ by sending him into the world to die on our behalf, to be reconciled to him, your sins dealt with. That's such is God's concern for you. Now, if that's the case, do you really think that God will forget about you? That you'll drop off God's to-do list, that he'll forget about what you actually need? No, such is the extent of God's love for us that he gave his, his one and only son on our behalf to die on the cross. Don't you think God will provide for our needs all the time? So Jesus calls on us to have the right thinking, to think about God's sovereignty, God's love, but then he also calls on us to have the right priorities, to exercise the right priorities. Verse 33 But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. To seek first God's kingdom means to seek God's rule over every part of your life. Every recess of your life to joyfully submit those to him. Now Jesus talks to us about having the right priority because very often, you know, we have the wrong one. Now remember Jesus has been reminding his followers To choose between two alternatives, treasures on earth, treasures in heaven. To choose between two masters, God or money. And he's getting them to think about what they want most in life, to do the diagnostic, to evaluate. Who are they going to serve more? Because everyone, everyone has a master. Everyone will have a master. The master we choose will be an indication of our ambitions and desires, what we want out of life. That means, according to Jesus, there is a direct link between that which we will place first in our lives and whatever we choose as our master. And and, and, and what we choose as our master, that's what our minds are going to be occupied with. When you have nothing else demanding your attention, that's where your mind is going to go. That's That's what you're going to worry about. And the word that Jesus uses three times in this passage for worry literally means a divided mind, a distracted mind. To worry means we'll be distracted. We'll be distracted from thinking about our rightful heavenly master to thinking about the demands and affections of our counterfeit earthly masters. These earthly masters that cannot possibly provide for us what we actually need. So spiritually speaking, your worry helps you to think about what you value most in life. Worry is a kind of smoke. You follow the smoke, you get to the fire, the fire of what is ultimate in your life. In other words, worry kind of has a a similar function to money. 
it helps you to see what you love most in life. It's that diagnostic. So look at where your money is spent more easily. Look at what you worry about most in life. Confess. Identify, confess, bring those things to God and remind you yourself of the surpassing greatness of what God provides for you instead. So Jesus reminds us to have the right priority. If you're genuinely seeking the kingdom of God, you will stop obsessing about all these things that are out of your control. God will give you what you need. Queen Elizabeth I once told a man to go on a, on a journey for her to the New World, the Americas, uh, for, for a project she wanted done. And he said to her, you know, Your Majesty, if I go, the, the, the business, the small business I have will fail. She looked at him in the eyes and said, you mind my business and I'll mind your business. You mind my business and I'll mind your business. And suddenly, this guy's worries evaporated because here is Queen Elizabeth I, a monarch of absolute power and wealth, and he's say, she's saying to him, you mind my business and I'll mind your business. He's got nothing to worry about because his business is about her business. He does her will. Seek first his kingdom and his rule and everything else will be sorted out. Friends, we have a wonderful king to serve, the exalted Lord Jesus Christ, the one who sustains for us day by day, the one who has provided our most desperate needs. He knows exactly what we need in every circumstance of life and he delights to provide for us. Conform your heart to his. Make your concerns the same as his concerns. Give everything to him because there is no one better that we can serve. Amen. Amen. Let me pray. Our loving God and Heavenly Father, we, we confess that we are quick to love the things that you give us rather than love you. And our hearts are prone to wander. We're prone to forget your loving goodness and your provisions upon us, especially in Jesus Christ. And we worry. We forget that you are in control and we forget about your unrelenting and overwhelming love for us. So Lord, help us to put those practices into place so we can be reminded of the right treasures and the right concerns. Help us to pause and think, to confess, to love correctly, to love the things that you want us to love and to use all those things that you give to us with joy and delight for your causes and for your kingdom and for your glory and honour. We need your Holy Spirit in us, Lord, because we're insufficient to do these things ourselves. So we pray for your hand upon us in Jesus' name. Amen.